Welcome to Under the Skin, where I ask what's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, of the history that we are told. This show is sponsored by me and my Rebirth Tour. The next couple of shows are sold out, but there are some tickets available for Northampton, 6th of July, Grimsby, 10th of July, Regent's Park, London, 30th of July. Now it's time for Under the Skin. Listening to Under the Skin with Russell Brand, our radio podcast. Well, it's not really radio, it's broadcast on the internet, but it's a show where we get under the skin of political issues of the day, anthropology, and in some cases, consciousness itself. Consciousness is not just one more phenomena, but the seat of all phenomena, I've heard it said. My guest today is Sharon Salzberg. Sharon is a best-selling author and teacher of Buddhist meditation practices. In 1974, she co-founded the Insight Meditation Society and has been leading meditation retreats around the world for over three decades. Her books include Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection, and Real Happiness, the Power of Meditation, which was on the New York Times bestseller list. She's been honoured by the New York Open Centre for her outstanding contribution to the mindfulness of the West. Thank you for coming on our show, Sharon. Oh, well, thank you for having me. When something happens, like, on your journey here, like where the taxi is late or it's, like, I don't know, things don't go your way, the material world doesn't respond in accordance with your worldview, how does meditation and Buddhism help then? Well, hopefully it does. I mean, that's a, yeah, of course. Uh, otherwise, it would be kind of a sorry state, you know, if it was just like worked on the cushion and didn't work anywhere else. But I try to remember to breathe. I try to remember, I mean, this poor woman who was who felt responsible for me, you Is know. Is that the woman that you're working with? Yes, you know, who, so you, who was doing the best she could. Compassion. Mm. She was doing absolutely the best she could. And even the taxi driver who seemed under duress and not in the best mind state, you know, it was just like, okay. Let's not make this worse. So you try not to, in that exact instance, you're not overly identifying with your own worldview. But are you still, one could say, biochemically feeling like, I'm a bit annoyed about this happening, this shouldn't be going on, and then going, don't respond to that, or you're not even feeling that anymore? No, I feel, well, partly because I felt responsible to you. I wanted to be here on time, you know, uh, but I wasn't going to be and things like that. So, of course, I feel it, but, and I think he could have been nicer, but if he you know, really knew how to be nicer. He might have been, uh, you know, so in the end, I think he was just the way he was. So real compassion and real tolerance becomes compassion and tolerance in situations when it's not easy to be compassionate. Because like, I can be, like my little daughter, Mabel, I can be compassionate and tolerant towards her because everything she signals at me is, oh, God, she's so cute. Even when she's, and which she primarily is, a vicious, grabbing, biting, <laughs> nasty, <laughs> dominant ego creature. No, she's, I mean, she is. How old is she? Seven months. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's pure God, but she's also pure will. I yeah. mean, like, yeah. it's, it's yeah. really amazing to be confronted with. Um, so, what, well, the problem I have, uh, Sharon, is that um, I. Have really spent a lot of time ornamenting my ego and uh, building a life around it. So now that I'm telling, uh, you know, to, to use a, a phrase that immediately sounds odd, I'm telling myself. So I don't know who's talking and who's listening. That like that my ego is a, a, a limited resource, somewhat arbitrary and also illusory. But I still find it difficult to overcome 
Doesn't does everybody? I don't know that the goal realistically needs to be overcoming the ego so much as uh, having a better relationship with it. You know, it's like um, something we talk about. It's like if you have a critical voice, if you have an inner critic that's prevalent and you know pretty strident. Uh, give it a name, give it a persona, maybe give it a wardrobe and invite it in for a cup of tea. Don't let it take over. Don't let it take over the house because you'll, you'll lose out, you know. But also you don't have to be ashamed or upset or afraid of that voice. It's just another voice. What about, uh, okay, so I have given, I've given mine a persona. Unfortunately, it's Russell Brand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh dear. I've, I've given it a radio show. I've given it a podcast. <laughs> I've given it a family. It's a greedy little thing. Um, what about sexuality, for example? What about those energies uh-huh. and forces that seem to have power of dominion uh, uh, over what I might call the myself? Well, I mean, they, they only have the power. In, I mean, they are powerful forces, but they're also possible to observe, right? And obviously... Are they? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, we don't act on every single impulse that comes up, maybe many, but not every single one. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Sometimes it's wisdom. Sometimes it's thinking better of it. Sometimes it's sheer good luck, you know, that that we just don't go for it. But I think kind of hating those forces or feeling they shouldn't be there also doesn't work. Mm. You know, that repressive, nasty voice of self-righteousness, it doesn't work. Yes, because I suppose that's a, a, a lot of kind of Western culture, if, if there is such a thing, seems to be derived yeah. from the kind of stifling of organic yeah. impulse, yeah. sort of a puritanism yeah. and a kind of hatred of the inner nature and outer nature manifesting kind of oppression of, of, of both of those things. How did you become, like, well up there Buddhist thing? Because it seems to me that you're some sort of chief Buddhist. I mean, I know there's no hierarchies in the uh, transcendent realm, but I fear <laughs> out you're at the top, you're at the top table. <laughs> Cool. <laughs> no one's ever said that about me before. I don't even See? know what it means, top table. <laughs> I don't know, like a cap- on a ship with the captain. Okay. Like saying, you know, the captain, you're near him. Well, would you like to come to the, uh, what's it called? The, d- the deck, the steer, the bridge. The bridge, the okay. Main where he's steering from. Okay, that's because I went to India when I was very young. I was 18, which was a good long time ago. And uh, I, I went as a college student, really, to study meditation. This was before, before. Why? You know. Because I was in tremendous pain and, and confusion, and uh, I'd had a really disrupted, traumatic childhood, and I also didn't know what to do with all those feelings inside of me. It was the kind of family system, like many, where nothing was ever talked about. It was never spoken about. So oh. there was like this strange, ambient silence around all of that. Ooh. you know. And what weren't being talked about now? What happened? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, my parents separated when I was four, and my father disappeared. My mother died when I was nine. Uh, I lived with my father's parents after that, and uh, he came back with a very serious mental illness, you know, after two years of my living with his parents and sort of disappeared into the mental health system. So I figured out once that by the time we went to college, which was when I was 16, I'd lived in five different family configurations, and every single one of them had shifted because of a death or some traumatic loss in some way. And and yet I had this fierce instinct, I don't know where it came from, that if I could learn how to meditate, I would be better. You have no memory of why you had this impulse. Well, I think it, it, it's not exactly memory. It's like instinct. You know, I took an Asian philosophy course in college, and that's why I heard it existed. And it was sort of in the air a bit. You know, the Beatles had gone to India, and 
you know. Thank God they did that, those Beatles, eh? Thank goodness. So it was the, you know, it was the late 60s. I went in 1970, actually. So you, for some reason or another, but, but straight off the bat, you said pain. 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 It made you want to mm-hmm. learn how to... Because like this podcast, I suppose what I'm trying to do, right? I'm going to this university called SOAS. I'm, le- I'm doing a course called Religion in Global Politics. And the reason I did it was because well, a couple of years back, I got really stuck into British politics. Uh, and curiously, it was initially, le- initially led by two forces that I believe to be pretty cool in me. Com- comedy and righteousness make people laugh, make people feel that they are beautiful. But then at some point, indeterminate perhaps because there is no actual distinction between these forces other than arbitrarily and artificially and externally, some other energy in me, call it ego, took over and uh, things went awry. And I found myself in an odd confrontation. I found myself in a recognisable cycle, a cycle mm-hmm. I've been in many times in my life, one of celebration, elevation, and uh, then suddenly disappointment. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I'm going to learn about all this politics properly. But I feel that, we in secularism has left people somewhat bereft of uh, essential truths mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. material and mechanical ideologies mm-hmm. can't lead to any real solution. So once again, mm-hmm. that thing you said, pain, was a spur. I'm very interested that in your early life you've had these triggering experiences that led you on, I suppose, what in Joseph Campbell lingo would be known as like a, a quest and off you went mm-hmm. on that quest. Mm-hmm. And when you're 18, you've gone to India. Did it, was it validating from the get-go what happened? Uh, almost from the get-go, not quite. I mean, I was I was very naive. I'd never even been to California before I'd gone to India. You know, I grew up in the East Coast of the U.S., and uh, there I was in India. And uh, there was something very reassuring about India because everything is so upfront. You know, people are born on the streets, people die on the streets, and all that hidden secret stuff was not there. Uh, no ambient silence. There's no ambient silence. But when I got to... Uh, actually meditate, which was some months later, because I couldn't, I was looking for something very practical and direct. I wasn't looking for something highly philosophical or religious and took a while to find that. But when I finally found that, it was, I knew from the first moment that there's truth here. What was it? Uh, It was a 10-day intensive meditation course. It was a Vipassana course or insight meditation. Um, In breath. Is that what is Vipassana meditation? Vipassana means insight meditation. The, The word for that particular school or style uh, they tend to take the Sanskrit or the, the Pali term, which is Vipassana. It just means insight, which is mindfulness. So how do you do that then? Uh, the first three days, you focus your attention on the feeling of your breath as it goes in and out of your nostrils. For three you days? Know, for just three on days. the breath of my nostrils, I just did one breath and I got bored of it. There you go. I tried to do one breath of concentrating on my nostrils. I'm like, oh, now I've got to get out of here. If you'd told me how to do that for three days. Well, now I'm going to tell you the secret of, of meditation, that which you probably time. already know, actually. Go on, on I'm I sure you already know. Taking my cardigan off for this. <laughs> okay. And that is we're always having to begin again. That it's one breath, we're gone. You realize that with some kindness towards yourself, you have to start over and start over and start over. That, I believe, is the secret to meditation practice, which I'm sure you know. No, I didn't, actually, because I'm actually a very slow learner. So, you, <laughs> what, you, like, you acknowledge and accept that there, that there is no point of termination or arrival. It's continually cyclical. Yeah. <laughs> because it's, it's that movement of the mind and heart. It's letting go more gently rather than with judgment, and it's beginning again. It's like a resilience practice, you know, because in life we're always having to begin again. Yeah. You know, we blow it, we have to start over, or we fall down, we have to get up, and oh, over and over and over again. So you say that the cycle of the breath is a kind of an essential yeah. symbol for yeah. this 
cyclical birth and termination process. Yeah, it's like a fractal. It's all there. It's all withheld within its its essence. That's right. That's nice, isn't it? So, like, (laughs) bloody relief. So it is useful because then when you're in a taxi and, like, you think this man's been a bit rude or whatever it is because you've not said, um, you on some level you are able to see this as just some distinct external phenomena. Do you also see, then, may I ask Sharon, your own thoughts to a degree as comparatively external almost to this essential witness? Uh, yes. I mean, I don't know if external is exactly the way I would say it, but with some space, some spaciousness. It doesn't feel like I am in the midst of them uh, caught up. As one of my teachers once said, it's not the thoughts that are the problem, it's the glue. You know, it's the way we take them to heart. We we believe them utterly. We, you know, uh, we don't have enough space in order to assess because some thoughts, of course, are beautiful. They're onward leading. They bring us together. It's it's like realization, and others are just old, old, old habits. See through now. This is childish questions now, for a little while. Uh, probably the rest of the show. Uh, like sometimes during these meditative experiences, have you experienced what in Hindi philosophy may be regarded as the cities? Uh, have you had insights that seem to you to infer a world beyond materialism? E.g., have you had experiences in your own consciousness that suggest that the material realm of reality? is supplemented or, in fact, enthroned by other realms of reality. Sure. I mean, cities means powers, right? So yeah, does it? Uh, yeah. Have you yeah. some powers? Yeah. No, I don't have any powers. <laughs> no, no, no. I have no cities whatsoever. But... You've seen any? You've seen any people with cities? Definitely. Yeah. That blows my mind. Tell me some good things you've seen. Well, I mean, um, there, there are people that I've met who... who uh, seem to have the ability to transcend time and space and that they'll know what's going on in another continent and they'll tell you, and it's true. Not not world news, but in your family, and it will turn out to be true, things like that. But I think, no, definitely... What you does know, that suggest to you? Well, I think it's just going back to your original question, is that the life as we know it, um, life is bigger than as we know it. You know, it's so much bigger, and we're so much more connected to one another, to one another beyond time and space, maybe beyond this body, maybe beyond this life. And, and uh, our view of life is, is kind of a narrow slice that we live within. And, and we could be happier, I think, if we had – it doesn't have to be immense, but bigger, you know, a bigger perspective on things. Lately I've been thinking, Sharon, about like when people thought the earth was flat, they weren't pretending that they thought the earth was flat secretly waiting for the revelation of its uh, sphere-like nature. They actually thought it was flat, and then everyone, no, it's actually round. All right, that now. So we all feel that this experience of consciousness is the only experience, the experience Mm -hmm. of via the senses. But But we are waiting, aren't we, for the revelation that there are different connections. Mm -hmm. I think we have them, actually. I think... uh, one of the phrases that in Tibetan Buddhism is used to when we say meditation, they have this really cute phrase. It's getting used to it or getting familiar with it. So that brings up the question, like, what's it? And that seems to be a belief that we've had those moments of profound connection with art or music or love or inspiration or even suffering sometimes brings us there. It's like everything else falls apart, falls away. And but we don't live in those places of profound connection. So they're fleeting. We're not used to them, right? We're not familiar with them. 
Yeah, we go, oh, that's a profound connection. Right, back to work. Yeah, that's right. Or what was that? Oh, you know, like, get away from that weird profound connection I had with the <laughs> glory of the infinite. So that's yeah. why they say we meditate is not to get something we've never had, but to live in the deepest places we've already known. So do you think then people listening to this podcast might go, oh, right, yeah, I felt this sort of euphoria perhaps at a football match or at my daughter's wedding or through some other sensory experience, but the thing that was triggered by the sensory experience was in fact that deep deep bliss yeah yeah so it's difficult isn't it it's difficult i find i mean uh, to translate the mystical because we're already ready always dealing in semaphore we're always once removed but let's say when is it true that buddha was saying anyone can do this anyone can achieve enlightenment Mm -hmm. you believe this too yeah i mean that was i think one of the great invitations for me, you know, when I took that Asian philosophy course in college, it was because before then, with my rather odd, different family configurations, I, I always felt different. You know, I felt excluded from possibility. I felt on the outside. And then here was the Buddha saying, anybody, no one left out, you know, which is a kind of breathtaking vision of human potential. It's not necessarily going to happen tomorrow, and it doesn't happen without application, you know, without effort. But yeah, everyone. That's pretty good, isn't it? Every single person can achieve enlightenment. Isn't one of their familiar, like some sort of Buddhist incantation or chant or something, isn't it like, I want everyone to achieve enlightenment, yeah. may everyone achieve enlightenment? Yeah, yeah, sure. Very optimistic, isn't it? It is rather optimistic. Don't you do proper ones for Donald Trump? Haven't you been asking for him to... <laughs> You've been praying, because I'll tell you now, it didn't work in. I think he's getting worse. <laughs> I see him this morning, he's in a terrible mood. <laughs> <laughs> You know, everywhere I go in America, everyone asks me that. Are you saying that I have to, you know, and it's not a question of obligation, but actually, interestingly like enough, you. the Buddha said, the Buddha said um, that love was the antidote to fear. And that makes sense to people because we tend to be afraid of him. I'm afraid of him, you know, and the consequences of his actions. And so uh, sort of ministering to that fear and exacerbating it is not is not leading me anywhere. I have to have some other thing going, which, and that's one of the great confusions about love is that it doesn't mean approval, you know, or liking or uh, giving in or just lying down and taking it. It doesn't mean that at all. It's just another source of realizing that our lives have something to do with one another, that we're connected and, and we have to kind of get on with it together somehow. Let's take this Donald Trump example because he seems quite prominent being president and all that (laughs) do you think then like say we could get him and trap him somewhere it's a nice place he's not going to be uncomfortable he's got some cushions he's got access to fake tan if that's what he needs and some of whatever that gel is he uses in his hair we don't deny him that he can have it if he wants it do you think through the uh, like through that three days of observing his breath going up his snout (laughs) (laughs) do you think that we're going to are we going to get anywhere (laughs) Like, or would he not cooperate? Do you think he could no, I'm not doing it. Now, come on, please, Donald, because he's going to be nice. The thing you're looking for in all those towers and presidency and walls and that, all those walls, you'll get it through this. Do you think we could actually... Do you think... Like, I mean, because I like that. Do you think it would work? Do you believe that in your heart? Uh, I think three days is too short. <laughs> I'm afraid that's all we've got. You'll be lucky to get that. He's very busy. We've probably got more like half an hour. 
I think three days is too short. Three days is going to be too short. Okay, you're right. You're right about that. But I was thinking a, a minute ago about those mandalas. Where they, where, what is that? Where Buddhists make those beautiful things? Tibetan Buddhists make that. Yeah, they they make these beautiful kind of um, sand creations with different colored sand that symbolize different kind of states of mind or states of consciousness. The whole goal of which at the end is to mush it all together and throw it away. So it's all, you know, they spend days or weeks or months creating this, and then it's all about impermanence. It's all about everything changing. Yes, because I suppose in creating some beautiful piece of art out of sand, and it all being so perfect and glorious, and I've seen them sometime, and then sweeping it up and mushing it up, yeah. like it makes me go, oh, no, don't do that, <laughs> right? So that and, but, of course, I am going to die actual me with my body and my head and face that I've worked so hard on so that's worse isn't it than some sand being swept up and then I thought then I thought even time ever seemingly timeless works of art such as Michelangelo's David one day too mm-hmm. this will be dust the planet mm-hmm. itself the stars and the sun all dust all dust so through and and if you are a limitless consciousness that doesn't experience space and time in the way that a finite entity such as a human does the difference between a sand thing being made and swept up and the difference between Michelangelo's David getting all turned into dust whenever that happens soon you know hopefully not soon I really like it like it's no big deal is it once you take time out of the equation so it's to live with this ulterior reality this reality is present and we are ignoring it. Much as you say that like when you were a child, you were sensitive to some reality that was being ignored. I recognise this. I didn't like it either. Yeah, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? <laughs> we're going to speak the truth as best we can or we're going to live. We're going to embody it. We're going to live it, you know, because that, I think, is the essential thing. If I think of poor Donald Trump, um, you know, what emotional pain he is avoiding, you know, through his actions and what it would take to sit there and look directly at it, you know, including the fear of death, which is so common, you know, and it's like, yeah, you're right. It's all going to go someday. And every building with my name on it is going to crumble. Every, you know, every every entity I create with my name on it is going to be as if nothing. And that's the truth of things. And, and it's very hard to, to face for any of us. Yeah. Why won't we face that? Well, it's it's devastating because it feels like annihilation, you know, but instead of almost, I think, a kind of natural rhythm. And as you say, we, we don't identify with anything other than this temporal reality. So it feels like complete wipeout, you know. Excuse me. How do we not allow that awareness of impermanence to become nihilistic despair that nothing has any meaning? Well, it it could easily tend toward that, but... I mean, that's in a way, that's why we have community. That's why we have teachers. That's why we have a path because it's a reminder like, no, you know, pay attention to your little seven-month-old. Don't don't say you're too busy because this is all changing. You know, before you know it, they're in, they're in graduate school or something, you know, or, or uh, they're a teenager and it's different. Or, you know, pay attention. Like really uh, live your life. Don't just – you know, think about it. Pay attention. So I should try and watch, because I <clears throat> was a drug addict for a long time. I keep doing things to... I like to be numb. Like, um, I used to like nice numb drugs. And I couldn't take them anymore, spoiled it. And then, like, uh, and now I sometimes do other things that are kind of numbing. I think when I th- analyse perhaps even pornography, I think it's numbing mm-hmm. rather than, oddly, you know, there's initial stimulation, but then it's becomes numbing or there's these compute games that someone's like to play where you immerse yourself entirely in an artificial world and i think the experience i'm having is numbing so that's a sort of 
an unwillingness too to confront this impermanence, to sit and breathe with it. Yeah, and I think you know uh, you use a great example in your forthcoming book of like <laughs> of, uh, backing away from you know like addiction in the sense of you know milder and milder and milder addictions, you know, which I think is a great example. Because confronting and breathing with it, I think, are different things. You know, it's not like sitting there with the pain and saying, I'm going to get through it, you know. But it's it's developing almost a space of love or compassion for yourself and presence. It's different. Being able to hang in there with those really, really painful things and just breathe is different than kind of um, being harsh with yourself and that excessive demand, like, I'm going to get through it, you know. And so we've got to build up that capacity too because that's a bit too martial isn't it individualistic to go i'm going to get through this it's a bit too kind of individualistic yeah okay um it says may i return to my research that gareth has worked so hard on i'm sorry to hear about all that suffering that you went through there with Mm -hmm. the death and abandonment when you were a child that sounds bloody awful um but what about this thing where you're hanging out with all Dalai Lama and that? That sounds much better. Did that happen? <laughs> Occasionally it happens, yeah. What's that like then? Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, he's, I think he's the kind of person, uh, somebody was just describing somebody to me the other day and saying they were uh, the same person, whether they were kind of on or private, you know, whether they were performing or they were just hanging out and yeah. the Dalai Lama is like that actually he's not you don't ever I never got the sense that he's thinking oh god this person is so dreary I wish they'd go away but I am the Dalai Lama so <laughs> I better act like he's interesting you know it's not like that well, if it's I just, the Dalai Lama I'd smack you so hard in the mouth <laughs> exactly. right finish being Dalai Lama now on the television <laughs> yeah he, that's yeah. a con- he's in a continuum of yeah. contact with yeah. his Dalai Lama-ness yeah. but he has had a lot of meditation practice, hasn't he? Every day. Every now, what day. about that thing where they select him with a walking stick from their past life? <laughs> it's a Tibetan That's a very thing. mysterious way to conduct business, isn't it? What do you think about that? I mean, what do you think about reincarnation? Is it real? Uh, I think it's real, but, I, I mean, I had great teachers in uh, my meditative life in that they all were about, you know, this is about you. In fact, one of my teachers said to me, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem. Now you solve yours, which I took to mean you can solve yours. You know, so it wasn't about believing anything. You didn't have to believe in rebirth. You didn't have to believe in the cosmology. Oh. Or, you know, it's all about your practice and what you could come to with your own awareness. And that was it. Quite hardcore, aren't they, Buddhists? With all that, kill the Buddha if you see him on the path. Oh, yeah, very, very nice. He's trying yeah. his hardest. <laughs> <laughs> First, give him a good kick in the leg, <laughs> and then the chokehold. So just sit and breathe. Something, something nice. Surely, yeah, a bit kind to him, I think. Yeah. Um, but I suppose what this is saying that, that it becomes interpretive if you're like, yeah. going, oh, right, Buddha did that enlightenment, did he? Because I've sort of, I suppose, maybe I read it somewhere that idea that often when we talk about enlightenment, we're in fact talking about gratification. We want to feel good. I want to feel yeah. good. Yeah. You know, when really what I want is not to have I to feel anything. Yeah, and I mean the theory is that we don't have eye to begin with, and that hmm. it's a construct. It's a, it's a kind of made up construct we misinterpret as being separate, in control, um, congealed, you know, uh, independent of everything else. And so it's not like there's no eye, and that we're going to become part of some soup, you know, and just just I melt, want to you be know. The soup. <laughs> but, I'd like to be a crouton. <laughs> I don't want to float in the soup, though. I don't want to be just mixed up all with that tomato and onion. Not me, no. I'll float about. (laughs) It's more about uh, seeing more accurately the way things have always been, which is that we live in an interconnected universe, you know, that 
we're all connected in, in ways that uh, really, you know, tell the lie on that that idea we usually have of like I am just me, you know. And what do you mean by that we're all interconnected? Do you mean in a biochemical fashion that the, the these taxonomies of self are arbitrary? That there are that the boundaries that we identify are perhaps arbitrary. It could be that. I mean, and I, I was more thinking in terms of. Um, like if I take this moment and I think about you and I and these other people are sitting in this room and uh, and then uh, – but I think about all the people who uh, had something to do with my being here in this room right now, all the way back to the people who gave me a scholarship so I could go to college, right? And that in some nice. ways my – this moment in time for me is also them, right? It's layers and layers and layers of relationship and connection, interaction and – all these things, and not only me, you, you know, and that all makes of us. To cry a little bit. Yeah. Well, I don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> Crying. Right, let's, let's drink some water. <laughs> and gin. <laughs> Compose ourselves. <laughs> we better get ourselves back to give a Sharon sitting here crying just because someone funded a scholarship 20 years ago or whenever it was. Bloody. It was a lot longer than 20 it? years ago. Well, it's even less reason to think about it. It was ages ago. Might not even have happened. They probably put, did that scholarship for their own selfish reasons. <laughs> Swines they was. No, yeah, I did some meditation once on a retreat, and they said that. Think about all of. First of all, they said, think of the people that you love. Oh, all right, them lot, girl. Then like they don't judge them. They said, oh, I'll stop judging them. Then girl, they shouldn't have done that though. <laughs> or sorry, they probably I don't know. And then like went to people that delivered me at a hospital, and then like the people that are working at the power station. And then I like once because I. Uh, you know, twelve steps is the thing for me. Yeah. It helps me because mm-hmm. I like that way of breaking down my relationship mm-hmm. with external mm-hmm. phenomena. Uh, like, uh, I thought, oh well, I don't think I would be able to not drink and take drugs if it were not for twelve step fellowships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I did not invent twelve step fellowships; they were just there. And then I realised I didn't invent the English language, and <laughs> 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 like I just get to be able to use it. Then mm. I realised I didn't give myself this body or anything; That's it's right. all just there. That's and right. all I'm basically doing is loafing around <laughs> <laughs> inside a corpse. Yeah. Hey, what, what's that thing? Don't pick up the corpse. Mean. What is the word thing? I heard this thing in but the Buddhists go around saying to each other at their Buddhist gang meetings, motorcycle bars, like don't don't pick up the corpse. Don't pick up the corpse. Oh, I don't no, know. This is one of those I must be going been... to the wrong bars. You yes, know? you clearly are. Like I tell you what this is, it's one of those things I often do this. There's things that I've once thought that Schopenhauer said Ah, oh, you know, we're tossed around on the storm of beingness, and then we realise that we are the storm. And then someone said, "That ain't Schopenhauer." I, went, oh, I still <laughs> like it. Right. So anyway, this thing that I thought don't was, pick up the corpse. Well, that yeah, could make sense. Let's think about that. <laughs> well, I interpret it to mean that you're already dead, and every time you get agitated and annoyed by something, it's like you've gone. I bloody well will not die. You come here and give me back my toffee apple, like as yeah, if you start true. taking reality seriously again. It's true. Yeah. That, that's a good... I'm going to say that from now on. Do you want it? Yeah, I Can want it. Can you pretend that I invented it? Because actually, I, thinking I about it now, I think I... Uh, I shall. I'll drop your name whenever I get Well, as Russell Brand says, and maybe I should have some sort of suffix, Russell Brand G or Russell Brand something, I don't know, something that makes me sound more important, if you wouldn't mind. And uh, he come up with that. I don't know, he just said it. He wasn't even trying, I that's don't That's a think. good saying. I like it. Because, of course, we do that exact thing. It's like so much of what we're trained to want and hold on to and... Uh, try to experience is like a totem to protect us from having to be aware of death. You know, yes. like it's not going to happen because I've got this, you know. Yeah. Whatever. I used to sometimes get in this cold water. And when I got into the cold water, it was his ex girlfriend. She was very well off. She had a bloody great big river running through her back garden anyway. I like, used to get in the cold water. 
and used to make, go, make this noise that I never heard myself make, really. And I thought, wow, I have this, all this that I can occupy. There's, this, there's these regions and kingdoms within me that I never go into. I live only on this line, this line mm-hmm. of uh, mm-hmm. these feelings and emotion. And whenever I get overly involved in politics, it's difficult not to do when it's so stimulating and exciting, such tragedies and drama, that I remember a thing I read in this Christian philosopher, Emmett Fox, said, civilizations come and go, the soul is eternal. Is this right, do you think? Uh, I think it is right, and I think uh, as human beings, we have to be involved. You know, we have to be engaged, and uh, and how amazing, how blessed, really, if we could do it with that perspective. I will give everything I can to this campaign, this effort, this. And in the end, I mean, I think that about. I think about American civilization. I think, well, civilizations rise and fall, and yet I think I can't just sit around and watch people suffer. You know, and. And not do everything I can to see if policy-wise or, you know, however, uh, things can change, you know, for the better. Is your path then, Sharon, to teach people to meditate? Yes. If you feel like if enough people learn to meditate, what, what do you think will happen if enough people meditate? I think if enough, well, I think it's, my path is, if you bring in politics, it's like meditation plus. Um, I think uh, if enough people meditate, there will be a wellspring of compassion that arises within them. And that out of that, we can learn to see one another not as the other so much, not as alien. Uh, And I think that an education around effort is important because it's not a, you know, it's not an immensely gratifying field. You don't always see yeah, I did this and it worked out right away, you know. It's like uh, we need to have really long-term perspective and a sense of history in a way. And You know, like I think – I thought of this a few minutes ago when you were saying something. I thought – I think of the civil rights movement, for example, in the States. And I think in some ways I see it through the distortion of history and that I often think, wow, those people were so brave and they were so amazing and they'd go down and like on their – knees and they'd pray and then they'd go get beaten and, you know, and almost like I have the mistaken notion that they knew it was going to work. And then I realized they didn't even know it was going to work. They did it because it was the right thing to do. And, you know, I think, oh, yeah, it worked, you know, but they didn't know that. So it was even more incredible that they would go out and do that. Do the right thing and let go of the results. Yeah. That's pretty, it's pretty powerful, isn't it? Yeah, because we, we cannot help but regard heroes and martyrs as contributors to the narrative as we now know it as opposed to the architects of that narrative if meditation unveils compassion what does that suggest about our true nature i think it suggests just that isn't it interesting um that if we i think compassion is both our true nature and i think it's it's a trait that can be trained that's one of the great controversies about teaching meditation, like loving-kindness meditation or compassion meditation, because it sounds so cold and weird, like I'm going to train in compassion, you know, but... uh, Hello, I am very pleased to meet you. Would you like a cuddle? (laughs) That was really good. (laughs) Thanks, it came to me. But, uh, you know, it's more in the sense of, like, uh, from the Buddhist point of view, something like compassion... Uh, is an emergent property of how we pay attention. It's like if I were to meet someone and not really listen to them, and I just kept thinking about the email I needed to write or who I'd rather be talking to, there's not going to be a connection. And so 
the compassion has no place to arise. But if I really pay attention, it can arise. So it's not forced or like I've got to be loving, you know, like that. But but we create the ground out of which it will naturally emerge. And as you have continued to practice, do you find that you are less discerning of whom you grant compassion to and it becomes even almost universal? Uh, I think the compassion becomes universal. I don't think I've lost discernment in the sense of, you know, like just even when I use the word love or, or we use the word compassion, it's not like I'm going to have dinner with everybody I meet, you know, or wish would be happier or, you know, let's say Donald, you know, for example. Uh, you know, I'm not going to say, yes, go for it. I hope you win. You know, that's 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 like ignorance. It's not wisdom, you know, but but I could wish that he and everybody be free of suffering in some way. Yeah, we've got to wish he's free of suffering because... Like the, so what we believe in is the essential truth that if Donald Trump would peel through the layers, starting with his hair, right the way down to the truth, <laughs> that he would discover in there that what he really wanted was universal love. Another thing I read in another Christian thing, cause I don't know why I'm so Christian, probably because where I'm from and everything, um, like uh, C.S. Lewis, he does this beautiful bit of writing where he goes... Uh, you obviously know it. Uh, he goes like, uh, you, people know when you're being out of order. Like you, like if you take someone's seat on a bus, or if you like, if someone gave you an orange one day, and then the next day you were eating an orange, and you thought, I'm not giving them any. Some voice, and you would go, That's wrong. What you're doing? <laughs> like it's so. It's not some external force that you're being asked to align with, into which you are acculturated, but uh, an inner essence that will be revealed to you mm -hmm. and C.S. Lewis uses this uh, as a Christian for a demonstration of the presence of God uh, in Buddhism what is the idea of God please 10 seconds 9 <laughs> 8 7 <laughs> oh, no, I, was, I was just mimicking the Buddha you would like to know perhaps that the Buddha was asked that and he remained silent what a yes. <laughs> he's always one step ahead isn't he the Buddha because as they say uh, there's a very also a cute phrase for that. They say, he lived in disputatious times. He lives in times when people like to argue with one another about theory and not just kind of get down to it and practice and change. Did he so, live in disputatious that's times? That's what they the say, Buddha. and so do we, don't we? Yeah. You know, so he would just stay silent because the presence or the absence of a god is, is not relevant. As he put it, I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. That's and, wow, he said it's irrelevant whether or not there's a god. Yeah. That's weird, because we had that Yanis Varoufakis in here the other week. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, and he goes, I wanted to argue about the nature of essence, because I don't know why. Perhaps I'll uh -huh. work it out by the... You'll perhaps you'll help me to understand. But, he, like, he goes, it don't matter. And this was, he was wicked, because yeah. he clearly understood what I was saying, yeah. even though he's yeah. totally on a political deal. He understood... He well, goes, he's a Buddhist meditator. You know? Oh. Yeah. God, I should well, ask yeah. more questions. My, I, I switched my, off. <laughs> my, I about an email. My first teacher is his teacher. You're kidding? Yeah. Right, so he knows the score, that Yanis Varoufakis. Yeah. I thought he did. Well, he goes, uh, he goes, it don't matter whether spirit comes from matter or matter comes from spirit. Yeah. It's irrelevant. No one's ever going to know who cares, more or less. I thought, well, that is a good point. But I do like the argument, so I think I'll push on. <laughs> <laughs> we live in disputatious times. What do you know? Yeah. We live in disputatious times. We live in disputatious times. So it doesn't matter then whether or not it just matters to, to become beautiful and to become yeah. compassionate. Yeah. Hey, have you ever taken ayahuasca? No. 
well, I was listening to some stuff. I'm not allowed to because of bloody drug addiction. But I was listening to this shaman guy talking about having taken ayahuasca. Yeah. And he described the experience lustily. This is a bit I liked. He goes, all his thoughts sped up so, so fast. And he thought he must be doing drugs all the time. He's a shaman and he must be messing around with all sorts of wonderful plants. Because the thoughts spread out really quickly. And then he goes, I had the conscious idea that these thoughts couldn't keep going this quickly or something would happen. And then he goes to some sort of thing. Something happened and the thoughts stopped. And then a similar thing happened with feelings. Feelings, he stopped, like, you know, they stopped feel- he stopped feeling them. And then he said that he had this thought of, like, that he was going to lose himself. And this is how he translated it. I had the thought, oh, no, I've been bought in for this medical experiment because he was doing it under medical conditions. And they've... Balls it up and I'm going to die I'm going to die he translated into literalism even in that moment and then he said he, there was this transcendent experience where there was no self and he felt himself as part of the whole and he experienced the idea of wholeness and oneness and the great sages and teachers through the ages and that these various frequencies were continually repeating themselves throughout time and he was really enjoying that and loving it and then it wore off and he came back to being normal again what do you think about that? I think it, I hope he wasn't totally normal when he came back because <laughs> sounds like a great experience. Right, oh, it's rubbish. That just carried on. <laughs> I had a can of coke, <laughs> lit up a camel, <laughs> got on with his day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm a child of the '60s, you know. Like, uh, I mean, of course, people, you know, as you know, can take these substances and have incredible experiences. And the question is, are they integrated into one's life? You know, and and does it become? just an endless seeking. I need that more. I need it. I need it again. I need it. You know, uh, I mean, there's a difference between state states and trait changes. You know, it's a difference between having some vision that's extraordinary and full of light and uh, full of love and being with your cab driver in a more loving fashion when they're incredibly annoying and they leave you in the wrong place yes. and you have to walk a million miles, you know, to get to where you're going. That's different. And so it's easy to uh, undertake meditation thinking about states. You know, I'm going to have this beautiful serenity or I'm going to have this complete peace. But the real goal is trait changes. We want to have a different life. Traits, not states. Yeah. Because I've been thinking a lot about states because I love states. Yeah, of course. We all do. Because when, like, one of the things I feel like I was looking for a lot when I was taking drugs was some kind of connection. Of course. Yeah. Hmm. I wanted to feel that. I mean, that's why the whole 12-step program is is genius, you know, because of, I mean, not only that, you know, there's a lot of elements to it that are genius, but but that recognition that, yeah, this is a spiritual hunger. This is what it really is. It's know? a spiritual hunger. How do we, like, now we have, it's very difficult, isn't it? Because it seems in our time we have discarded the idea, or we, uh, God, what is that we? But, the, but it's, it seems hard to talk about spirituality. People think that you might be some sort of hippie or weirdo freak or something. And given that I am all of those things, it's difficult to deny it. So how do we reintroduce spirituality into the contemporary conversation? And Because people do seem to, may I say, need a myth. Like when you and bloody Yanis Farquhar is going. Don't matter if the what came first. People like stories, and they need stories. And it's very hard to engage people when you go. It don't matter. All I'm saying is one thing: end suffering. Mm-hmm. It's taking too long. <laughs> Can we speed it up a bit with a nice anecdote about some sort of lads? <laughs> I don't know me. <laughs> Can we speed it up a bit? Well, uh, it's interesting, you know. Like in in my day when I was young, and I went to India, you had. You had to be so highly motivated, thank you, uh, to to really want to put in that kind of effort because you couldn't find it, you know, easily. You had to really – I had to go to India before ever getting to California from New York. But 
these days it, it is so much more accessible. So we actually probably need a different story. Not You don't have to be in such terrible pain, but you have to really want to understand your life. You can't just want to live on the surface of things. And, you know, it's a story about curiosity and and your mind and your heart and, and you know, going deeper. And uh, I think we are creating that story. How long have you been meditating, please? <laughs> Uh, I have been meditating for 46 years. How recently did you transgress against your, uh, like, say me, I'm always, I, I feel like those are the stuff I know it and people have told me it before and I can't argue with it and they're right and everything. And still temptation, still materialism, still flaws, faults, desire, etc. When was the last time you did something you think, oh, I shouldn't really have done that? Oh, probably this morning. Oh, no, what did you do? <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's more, it's like in the level of, and it doesn't quite reach the level of speech, but it's like attitude, like, yeah, you know, you. Like, right. uh, you still feel perhaps yeah. a bit churlish, like I'm a person. Fuck yeah. all this crap. Yeah. And so you, you get language on Yeah, of course. Excuse my language, yeah. Yeah. You, you do feel that. Yeah. But now there's, you, you are quickly able to recognise it and not overly identify with it. And yeah, yeah. So do you think the meditative practice, one cultivates, a, this is one to use rudimentary imagery, a place that to which you can return when inevitably that happens? Yes. That's why I said, you know, the, the essential teaching is beginning again. It's ah. like being able to forgive yourself and begin again because we blow it continuously. And so that same movement of letting go... And starting over, it's like the first lesson, and I think it's the last lesson. It's what we're always doing. And, and uh, you know, sometimes I think, like, oh, I started out just being with the breath, like those three days with the breath. And, but really what I was doing was letting go continually because it was so hard in the beginning. Every time my mind wandered, I'd hate myself and I'd carry on and I could spend forever. I can't believe you, you know, you're always lost in thought. No one else is lost in thought. And, and watching that sort of, you know, Get shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. That period of reaction has really been what it's about, you know. Cool. So we we say things like, um, to put it more poetically, uh, the healing is in the return, not in never having wandered to begin with. Or, you know, it's it's a process of recovery. It's continual recovery. That's what it's about. What what traits have changed? Oh, everything. Like I, because I'm a long way from eighteen. You know, it's like it's been my whole life that I've been meditating. So. Uh, in the beginning, I think one of the prime things I would say about myself is that as unhappy as I was, I was unacquainted with myself. And so, um, you know, I, I'm famous somewhat for having marched up to my first meditation teacher, Goenka, and looking him in the eye and saying, I never used to be an angry person before I started meditating, <laughs> thereby laying blame exactly where I felt it belonged, which was on him. You know, and of course, I've been hugely angry. I mean, look at everything I'd gone through. But I didn't know it, you know, and so now it's like for me to be able to say, yeah, I was really angry this morning and it was like, you know, instead of feeling, oh, God, I'm like the worst person in the world and, you know. That acquaintanceship with yourself means that you can accept yourself and accept yeah. your own feelings. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel like you have lived before in another form? Uh, I feel like I've lived before in another life. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. 
Is that a specific thing? Do you you sort of feel like you have cogent, coherent and particular narrativized memories? Uh, I feel like I've lived in Europe in World War II that I have. I see photos of a car, a street scene with those cars or Uh something like that. And and it's it's almost like a, a body reflex, like a memory, like, oh, yeah. But, of course, I have no way of knowing. Yes, yes, yes. It feels difficult to imagine that consciousness would have any separateness or separation. So perhaps like that city that you described earlier was that that you could experience all consciousness in all its forms because how would it, how could it be anything other than one and interconnected? But I suppose it's yeah. the idea of particularized previous lives. But to me, like I sometimes feel like well, it's all all one thing. You're experiencing it continually as part of a continuum this thing you have when I was a kid I used to I remember the wallpaper of this room this small room and I used to sit in there and uh, repeat my own name continually and thinking mm. what will happen to my mind if I only allow it to think now at this point I'm like seven and like this thought occurs to me to disrupt the mechanism of continuing thought does that mean I'm the new Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> Have an orange. <laughs> I get so excited, don't I, about being alive in the silly, silly world. Um, hey, right, here's some questions that Gareth wants me to ask, and I'll do it, because why not? I was going down the familiar Jesus trope, probably time for some new data. Um, studies have found... This is just a thing that's occurred to me. Uh, if I may say so, Sharon. Studies have found some people would rather give themselves an electric shock than be alone with their yes, thoughts. Yes. Why do we find it so hard to be in our own mind? The study was the University of Virginia, and it uh, was uh, predominantly men who would prefer to uh, give themselves a, a, an electric shock. So maybe I should ask you. <laughs> no, that, that's really what they found. The, the, not everyone, but the larger proportion of men than women. Well, if I'm left alone my own thoughts too much, I start to want stuff. Like, I start to want. Wanting kicks in, first of all. I do love to meditate. I meditate. I do mantra meditation. Yeah. Sometimes I like to chant. Yeah. Um, excuse me. I, I've always enjoyed the... When I think about the drugs, I like get out of my head. This, But I like quite colourful, ornamental, lurid religious ideas. I find asceticism rather difficult. Mm-hmm. It, like... You there, Buddhist. You, <laughs> <laughs> you have to be an ascetic, is that right? Well, there's a lot of different forms of Buddhism. You know, Tibetan Buddhism is so Baroque and all this imagery and, uh, you know... Them dragons. Go- goddesses and gods and, you know... Like, like that? Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, I, most of my practice was in a rather more austere setting in Burma or with Burmese teachers and the breath, you know, like, you know, simple things like that. So I've had I've had both, but... Do you think a significant number of people are ever going to be able to take on that kind of asceticism? Um, I think it, it's simple enough and direct enough so that people uh, may not take it on as a whole lifestyle, of course, you know, but but there's something about having a respite, having a short period each day where you're just not bothering, you know, to uh, present yourself or figure something out or or explain yourself, you know, mm. you're just being with your experience, which is pretty beautiful. Yeah, I really like it. Why it says another question here. Why do we tend to have a habit always to go to the negative? Uh, why is an interesting framing. You know, I had uh, several teachers who used to say, "Don't think about why; just think about what." Um, I mean, evolutionary 
psychologists would say it's because of you know negativity bias that we're trained to look for danger for threat. It's as though we're still in the jungle as creatures, and uh, but you know the why is sort of unfathomable in a way. Mm. We seem to have that habit, and so what it takes is not force or coercion, but it actually takes intentionality. Like, look at what I have to be grateful for. You know, my mind would never go there on its own, you know. It's yeah, like, you have to you encourage know, it off in that that's direction. Right, that's Come right. Come over there. Well, okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And See, it's nice over there, isn't it? I suppose so. Like, your mind's like a little child thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. bless its little art. Hey, I was reading and not understanding much. These Lao and uh, Drang and all them guys. I mean, I'm sorry to be rude about them. I'll tell you something. I feel like they're referring to something kind of like it feels like there's some mischief in it. I felt like there's some mischief in it. Like they, you know, them what they called Zoans or whatever. Uh, like I could hear it, and it makes me think that they're trying to disrupt the mm-hmm. nature of mm-hmm. reality. Mm-hmm. And it's got some sort of murky trickster playfulness in it. What is this energy? What is that? Well, in the in the Zen tradition or Taoist tradition, you know, in, in uh, uh, it is about non-dualism. You know, it's it's about confounding the thinking mind, and you know, we're so linear and we're so kind of determined to stay linear, and then it's like the shock or the surprise. Even in in Tibetan Buddhism, they say if you really want a glimpse of reality, get on a roller coaster, you know, and see what it's like when you're that moment when you start to go down. You know, it's like whoa. I do get that sometimes. That's how it's an all right feeling, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's quite nice, but you have to sort of let go of the body. So, <clears throat> in this um, thing where uh, the Dalai Lama is selected via this, what seems rather arcane, and like it's, mm-hmm. it's odd that with the sort of like Christianity and stuff, uh, there's a lot of open mockery of the pageantry mm-hmm. and seemingly preposterous traditions and rites. Isn't it interesting that Buddhism, which I think even like, you know, your atheists and secularists think, well, if I was going to do a religion, I'd do that one because it seems a bit more bloody grown up. Uh, like, like it's still got in it some mad yeah. shit. There's no avoiding <laughs> that once you start saying that the material world's not that important. It's an illusion. Like, like... What is that? Do you feel that that is true, that, that you can... F- locate a person through time through bodies that an essence is traveling through forms that you know that when they go there they dig out that Dalai Lama as a result of burning ceremonies and stuff and does he himself go I do remember that now thinking about it like you know like, is it like can it be secularized can it be normalized can yeah. it be transmitted yeah no it can be secularized I mean my my own teachers my main teachers were not Tibetan they were Burmese and, and there's none of that you know the word for teacher is not guru, it's spiritual friend. Um, it, it's a really down-home kind of friendly <laughs> approach, you know, and there would be none of that. But uh, even within that, where they would believe, yes, you can learn to read minds if you really want to. You know, it's not a path of wisdom. It's not a path of love. It's a path of power. Oh, if you power. really want, you could take a path of power. But they would say, yeah, those things can happen and they're true, but they're kind of irrelevant or they're less relevant, you know. Because you can do that well. I mean, maybe you have powers and you're using them toward the good, or you can do it poorly. You know, so why not devote your life to love, you know, or to wisdom? Why devote it to just power? So they'd say, yeah, my, I have a teacher, a woman, te- I had a woman teacher who was the person who actually told me to teach. So in some ways, she was my most important teacher. 
and she'd had like tremendous suffering in her life and uh, came to practice after you know losing two children, losing her husband, and uh, being so overcome with grief she couldn't get out of bed. And she was living in Burma. She had one daughter still, and uh, the doctor said to her, "You're actually going to die of a broken heart unless you learn how to meditate. Um, unless you do something about your mind, you should learn how to meditate." So she got up out of bed. And she went to the temple to learn how to meditate. And when she emerged from whatever length of time she was there, she was like so compassionate and so loving. And she'd found a way somehow to translate that terrible pain into compassion for everybody because she knew everybody's life was that unsteady, you know, unknowable, like anything could happen. And and she was like radiant and, and just so amazing. And, and so... But they say she had those powers, you know, that was something that she could do. But it was like, when I think of her, I never think of that. I mean, I never saw it, you know, but even if I'd seen it, it's like, I think, no, she's the person who told me to teach. She's the person who was so loving toward everybody. She's the person who was like so strong and yet, you know, you would never, so humble. Uh, yeah, I never think, oh, she, what they say is she could bake a potato in her hand and make it taste like chocolate. You know, it's like. I don't, I don't care, you know. Like, <laughs> you know, so it's like you could have a worldview that accommodates all that, but not think that's the goal. Yes, I suppose that what's happening in such instances, Sharon, is that we're fixating merely on novelty, yeah. because all is mysterious, all is magical. Like that's this Bobby Roth who taught me transcendental yeah. meditation. You know yeah, that I know. Yeah. I really love him. Yeah. Once we were meditating in my house, and I was going, listen, mate, I want to see some magic shit now. Because <laughs> you know, I'm childish and materialistic and the lust for power, of course. <laughs> so like, um, he goes, yeah, but look at, like, we were, like, in California, and we opened our eyes, and it was trees and wind and magnificence and yeah. celestial firmament and all of that stuff. He goes, look at this, though. What is it you really want? Yeah, what is it yeah. you really want? And like when you say that stuff, like having gratitude for all the people that contribute to your life and the scholarship, and really to isolate this moment and see this yeah. moment only as this moment is a choice. To That's see true. America as America is a choice. To see England as England is a choice. So to make a different choice. Yeah, that's right. I tell you, a spiritual person, because like when I meet them, uh, it, something happens to my head a bit. I like it. <laughs> Especially now I can't take drugs. I mean, if I could take drugs, I'd be with the old drugs. Those guys can be relied upon and prescribed and taken in dosages that you choose. But there, there, there is there is a downside. I wonder uh, what, like, hold on, I'm going to promote something now. Come on, have you got a new book? I have a new book. What's its name? It's called Real Love. Why? Uh, I like the way you use these the word real in things. Real happiness, suggesting that there's such a thing. What did you mean by real love? What I meant by real love is a profound sense of connection, really, that's not necessarily, you know, determined by the the um, container. You know, it's not a particular way of being with someone else or with oneself, but uh, it's it's really underneath uh, the myths of society and kind of the, you know, the cultural demands. It's It's really having a sense of being connected. And it starts with ourselves. So we start to love ourselves because a lot of us are a little bit unconscious, aren't we? We sort of think we want something. We've not really thought about why it was like you there saying, I'm really angry since you've taught me this meditation, you bastard. <laughs> like, but actually, you'd simply have been revealed. And like, like many of my objectives, I think perhaps are somewhat arbitrary and bogus and as a result of a lack of examination. 
So real love is like you will discover that you thought you wanted to be president of the United States, but actually you just needed a little bit of a cuddle. Now sit down (laughs) in our room and take your three days of snout breaths and you will enjoy it. I don't want to. You've got to. We're making you with compassionate force. This is some questions from Gareth, just to make sure that we've covered everything from a basic perspective, Sharon. Today, mindfulness is practiced in schools, prison, and even in corporate America. How can meditation transform society? Well, I, I think it, it uh, as, as it transforms people, it transforms society. And, you know, I've been in all those situations teaching, and and I just see people are people. You know, they have the same kind of questions, they have the same concerns, the same anxiety, the same um, yearnings, you know, to be happier, to be, to be more free. And uh, I think as any one person feels less caught in sort of the – you know, the prevalent myths of like you've got to accumulate endlessly and you've got to, you know, put everyone else down to feel better about yourself and yeah. um, all those things, you know, uh, as we see through them and, and we come to different choices, then, uh, you know, the people around us feel the influence of that and then, you know, the people around them and uh, yes, it yes. can be a different world. I was thinking of it in this manner that I think I put it in the book actually. If you were throwing a tennis ball against that wall there and then that wall was suddenly made of foam, the ball would bounce back differently. So, yeah. like, all yeah. things are yeah. dialectic. That's bloody Yanis yeah. Varoufakis said that and all. Yeah. Like, yeah. that self, uh, self is dialectic. Self exists in communion with other. They're these yeah. Uh, yeah. bogus distinctions. Mindfulness seems to be all the rage right now, but why do it? Why meditate? Why be mindful? What does it do for us? It is all the rage. It's, it's so rage. funny, you know. Is it? Yeah. Oh, it's funny for me because... Can you, you be doing it? I've, I've been being mindful for <laughs> ages now. You guys want to get on mindful, but I've been mindful when you was nobody. Exactly. Don't be spite. I think that every day. Don't be selfish about your mindfulness. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Radiohead. <laughs> you were into it when no one had heard of it. <laughs> I think that every day. Um, I was there before. It was cool. Uh, which I was. Um... I think the you know the personal benefits are uh, it's really like a skills training we get more present we're more more available you know we relate differently maybe we notice the beautiful things in our lives that we took for granted or weren't grateful for and and we deal with adversity very differently you know instead of feeling so crushed and so overcome and uh and we even have kind of those neutral ordinary kind of boring moments of life where we usually have to sleep we can wake up and we just feel connected you know how many hours a day you meditate? May I ask? Uh, my, I usually try to do like forty minutes a day. That's doable. What, yeah. One hit or two? One. One forty-minute hit. You wake up, meditate. Yeah, I try. And then you, the rest of the day, you feel pretty much connected to that thing. Yeah, and I also practice. We call it short moments many times, so it's like deliberate reminders. <laughs> like every time I drop the top of the water bottle, I'll just take a few breaths, <laughs> or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, or before I press send on the email, I'll just take a few breaths. Oh, every time. Of, yeah. You set up triggers That's right. to, yeah. for mindfulness. Yeah. yeah. What are they? Send on an email. Uh, right? Yeah. yeah the, the most famous one is don't pick up your phone on the first ring. Let it ring three times and breathe. Um, Why? Don't suddenly go, yeah, right. Yeah, because it's just like it's those moments of like stepping back from the maybe crazy momentum that's around you. Where you can just kind of land back in yourself, and then you kind of remember what you really care about, and uh, you just remember what's real. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, many people say they try to 
Oh yeah, right. People, I'm went to the people that meditate. They go, oh, I can't do that meditating because I like thinking. Like, that is it, you daft. <laughs> like, so what is that? People think they can't do meditating, don't they? I hear that so often. Like when I first came back from India in 1974, people, if I was introduced as a meditation teacher, would usually uh, they would go, oh, like that's weird. Mm-hmm. And these days they often say, oh, I'm so stressed out, I could use some of that. But they also say, I tried that once, I failed at it. You know, and I feel like those are my people because you can't fail at it. You know, it's impossible. But we have a lot of ideas of what should be happening. Like people say I failed at it because I couldn't stop my thoughts. I couldn't make my mind blank. Mm. I couldn't have only beautiful thoughts. I couldn't keep from getting sleepy. And we would say that what happens is not really the point. It's how we are with what happens. You know, so it's one thing to have a lot of thoughts and it's another thing to take them all to heart. and You know, let them like take over. Uh, so we're just trying to create a different relationship to our experience. I'm astonished with the things that go on when I'm doing it. Like often violence, sex. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, yeah. I think this can't be right. Once I was in a Kundalini yoga class in LA, surrounded by people all in white wearing turbans, and I was just sitting there thinking whether or not I should buy a gun. <laughs> so I could I get one. I am in America. I should probably get a gun. I'd love a gun. I didn't get one. I well, that's, that's actually the gap we're looking for is between yeah. what we're thinking and feeling and how we act. Right. You know, we feel what we feel and we think what we think. But how we act is, is a different question. We've done this for 60 minutes. It feels like a really good interview. I was about to ask you if there was any time for you to do... Can you can we meditate five minutes or something? That'd be fabulous. Is that okay? If you want to uh, sit comfortably, see if your back can be straight without being strained or overarched. You want some energy in your body, but not like so much energy. You also want to be relaxed and at ease. And you can close your eyes or not, however you feel most comfortable. And start by listening to sound, whether it's the sound of my voice or other sounds. It's a way of relaxing deep inside, allowing your experience to come and go. Of course, we like certain sounds and we don't like others. But you don't have to chase after it to hold on or push away. Just let it come, let it go. And bring your attention into your body, whatever sensations you discover. Bring your attention to your hands. And see if you can make the shift from the more conceptual level, like oh, fingers, to the world of direct sensation. Picking up pulsing, throbbing, pressure, whatever it might be. You don't have to name these things, but feel them. And bring your attention to the feeling of your breath, just the normal, natural breath, wherever you feel it most distinctly. Maybe that's the nostrils or the chest or the abdomen. Find that place, bring your attention there, and rest. See if you can feel one breath. Without concern for what's already gone by, 
without leaning forward for even the very next breath, just this one. And if images or sounds or sensations or emotions should arise, but they're not very strong, if you can stay connected to the feeling of the breath, just let them flow on by. You're breathing. It's just one breath. If something comes up and it's strong enough, it just picks you up. You get lost in thought, spun out in a fantasy, or you fall asleep. Truly don't worry about it. We say the most important moment is the next moment after you've been gone, after you've been lost. It's a moment where we have the chance to be really different. So instead of judging yourself or blaming yourself, see if you can let go gently and simply bring your attention back to the feeling of the breath. This is our practice. It's letting go and beginning again. feel ready, you can open your eyes. Thank you so much. What a wonderful experience that was. It's lovely to uh, talk to you. Thank you. It's lovely to talk to you. And then I really loved the meditation. It was amazing. It made me realize I might as well just do that. <laughs> That's what I sometimes feel when I meditate. Why I come back here sometimes. <laughs> Why is it we live here because we've got bodies, haven't we? We do live in our body here on yeah, Earth. At here this we go. Time. Yeah. Right. Because otherwise that starts to become an argument for, for, for <laughs> leaping into oblivion. All right. Well, thank you for that, Sharon. That was amazing. Thank um, you. If you like that podcast, you can give it five stars. It's called Under the Skin. And uh, that's it, really. It's sponsored by my own tour. Uh, you can find out about that on russellbrand.com. That's about all of the information I have to give you. You could take that meditation bit, you could keep that, and you could put little pauses in it, you listen to it, and it can guide you probably through the rest of your life if you knew how to edit. <laughs> not, not you, Gareth. You're very good. <laughs> all right, thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.